Hi, and welcome to Better Than New, the podcast to help you find a cool used car, truck, or SUV at a price you'll love. I'm your host, Gary Crenshaw, and if you caught episode 11 last week, you might remember that I mentioned I want to test drive the new 2023 GR Corolla, which is basically a 300 horsepower all-wheel drive hatchback rally car from Toyota. Now, I love the concept of a street legal rally car because of the performance capability, especially in all types of weather conditions. And in fact, I've owned a couple over the years, including a 1988 Toyota Celica all-track turbo, also known as the GT4 in Europe, and one from Mitsubishi that I refer to as the Rodney Dangerfield of rally homologation specials, because it just doesn't seem to get the respect it deserves. So what is this amazing but often overlooked street rally special? Well, I'll tell you about it and why you might want to own one in just a moment. So hop in, buckle up, and let's go for a drive. Today's focus car falls into that don't get no respect category, to a point anyway, for some legit and some not so legit reasons. So what is it? It's the Mitsubishi Galant VR4, a limited edition rally homologation special sold in the U.S. for only two years, 1991 and 1992. So rally homologation specials are halo cars for manufacturers and typically highlight go-fast technology that showcases their ability to build a winning race car. While these are not the actual rally cars, They were the platform upon which the rally cars were built. In the case of the Gallant VR4, they had to meet the Group A World Rally Championship parameters, meaning they had to be four-wheel drive with a two-liter turbocharged motor, and at least 5,000 had to be built for worldwide sales to the public. For the U.S. market, Mitsubishi imported a limited edition series of 2,000 badged and numbered Gallant VR4s in 1991, and a similar limited edition of 1,000 VR4s in 1992, with only some slight differences between the 91 and 92 cars. The wheels were a little bit different, the taillights were a little bit different, just minor stuff. Now, there were an additional nine unbadged cars brought into the U.S., presumably for magazine testing and for Mitsubishi executives to drive. So 3,009 cars were brought into the U.S., The rest of the VR4s, built on the 6th generation Gallant chassis, were sold in Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and some other Pacific Rim countries, with the key difference being that they were all right-hand drive models. Now, from a historical perspective, Mitsubishi has had a Gallant model in their lineup since the late 1960s, and those cars were first seen in the U.S. in the 1970s, but they weren't called the Gallant. Instead, they were brought here under the Dodge Colt nameplate, now, Chrysler and Mitsubishi had a long-standing relationship with Mitsubishi rebadging cars within their lineup to help Chrysler fill the gap of small, fuel-efficient cars that they didn't have. And in 1988, the two companies completed construction on the Diamond Star Motors plant in Normal, Illinois, where they'd build cars like the Eagle Talon TSI, the Plymouth Laser RS, and the Mitsubishi Eclipse GSX. The top versions of these DSM cars shared virtually the same all-wheel drive system and 4G63 turbo engine as the Gallant VR4, but the Gallant VR4 was built solely in Japan from model year 1987 to 1992, so it's not a DSM car. However, 
the VR4 version of the 6th generation Gallant does owe its existence specifically to Mitsubishi's rally racing efforts. Now, after some success racing in the Perry Dakar rally raid events in the 1980s, Mitsubishi then decided to enter the World Rally Championship by attempting a run at the Group B Open class with a four-wheel drive version of the Starion Turbo sports car. The Group B rules at the time allowed for the development of an amazing series of brutally fast rally race cars. This included the Audi Sport Quattro, the Lancia 037, the Delta S4, Ford's RS200, the Peugeot 205 Turbo 16, and, as mentioned, Mitsubishi's Starion four-wheel drive. Now, unfortunately, before the Starion was fully developed for competition, a couple of deadly Group B rally events occurred where either spectators or drivers were killed, and that led to the demise of Group B and subsequently made Group A the top class in the World Rally Championship. The Group A rules allowed for a turbocharged engine of 2-liter displacement and all-wheel drive, typically in a sedan chassis. Now, Mitsubishi had the engine and the drivetrain from the Starion, and they had the sedan, the Gallant, So, you know, Bob's your uncle, Fanny's your aunt. They put the two together and boom, they had a Group A rally car, the Gallant VR4. And they campaigned that car in the WRC's Group A from 1988 to 1992 with reasonable success. At the time, Lancia was the quickest to develop a race-winning Group A rally car after the demise of Group B. They ported over their development knowledge from the all-wheel drive Delta S4 into the legendary Lancia Delta HF Integrale. You might remember that car. It was a super cool four-door hatchback that won Group A's constructor title an impressive six years in a row from 1987 to 1992. I don't think any other car has ever done that since then. So it was a pretty special car. So tough competition for Mitsubishi. But the Gallant VR4 was competitive and did win some important WRC events during its run, including the 1989 Thousand Lakes Rally in the hands of Mikhail Erickson, plus the 1989 Lombard RAC Rally and the 1991 Swedish Rally. It also won the Asia-Pacific Championship outright in 1989, 91, and 92, and a Gallant VR4 won the 1992 US GT Championship in the hands of Tim O'Neill, And if you've heard of Team O'Neill Rally School in New Hampshire, it's the same guy. So he took that car to a championship here in the U.S. So while the Gallant had been part of the Mitsubishi lineup for years, there would be no limited edition VR4 variant of the Gallant sedan without Mitsubishi's participation in the World Rally Championship. So we have the WRC to thank for this wonderful car. Now, when I say the Gallant VR4 is the Rodney Dangerfield of street rally specials, I say that in the most loving way possible. That's because my experience with these cars is personal. I was the owner of a Gallant VR4 for 16 years, and it took me and my family on many fun adventures throughout its life under my stewardship. The Gallant VR4 I owned was a Belize green model with a sunroof. It was number 1607 of the 2000 imported to the U.S. in 1991. I was the second owner, and I purchased it in September of 2000 from the original owner. He had purchased it in Portland, Oregon, so it was a Pacific Northwest car for the majority of its life. There was no rust, no accidents, no issues. The first owner used it as a daily driver and put 92,000 miles on the odometer over a nine-year span. I used the car in the same manner and put another 126,000 miles on it before selling it in 2016. So what is it that makes a Gallant VR4 a great sports sedan for road use? Well, it starts with how it's built and what's inside. 
Now, the technology and features contained within the Galant VR4 were really quite formidable back in the early 90s. But what's amazing is that a lot of that technology is still impressive today. Now, the Galant VR4 was built on the sixth-generation Galant platform, and the basic Galant was a serious sports sedan in its own right. The GS model in the U.S. had a non-turbocharged, two-liter, dual-overhead cam, 4G63 four-cylinder engine that made 135 horsepower. It was front-wheel drive, and with the five-speed manual transmission, it could make short work of a long commute or a twisty back road. It was so good, in fact, that Motor Trend named it their import car of the year for 1989. In 1990, Mitsubishi upped their game a bit by adding all-wheel drive to the Galant lineup with the GSX model. And to top that, Mitsubishi then made available the limited edition Galant VR4 in the U.S. for two years only, 1991 and 1992. So why do they call it a VR4? Well, VR4 stands for Viscous Real-Time Four-Wheel Drive. It's a full-time all-wheel drive system that was specifically developed to complement the high-power output of the Starion Turbo Rally Car's 4G63 turbocharged motor. That car was making, during the development phase, somewhere around 350 to 380 horsepower. Well, this system had a viscous center coupling, and it allowed power, which was normally proportioned 50-50 between the front and rear axles, to be infinitely variable between front to rear. So it could be zero to the front, 100% to the rear, or vice versa. The system would sense wheel slip at either end of the car, and then would send power to the tires with the most traction. It was pretty sophisticated for the late 1980s. Now, I know how well the system worked from experience. I had a set of studless winter tires, Bridgestone Blizzax, on my 1991 Galant VR4, and with those, it was virtually unstoppable in wintry conditions, as long as the snow wasn't too deep. Now, we used our Galant VR4 as the family ski car, and if there was like a snowy corner coming up, my boys in the back seat would be yelling, Hey, Dad, do the turbo! And so I'd just get on the gas, let the boost build up, and then get the car into like a long, just kind of pitch it into a nice long slide. You know, the boys would be screaming. My wife was screaming. I'm laughing. It was great. Super fun to pitch that car around in the snow and let it slide. It was very controllable, very fun, very easy to do. So people always seem to get it mixed up where they think that traction comes from the all-wheel drive system. No, it doesn't. Traction comes from your tires, but the right all-wheel drive system can make the most of the traction you have available from your tires. In this case, I had the Blizzx on the car, and they stuck really well in the snow. They were brand new at the time of this story I'm going to tell you here. It was early January of 2004. I was working in downtown Seattle and living oh, about 20 miles out of town up in the Cascade foothills. And a snowstorm had started, and I was supposed to leave. I got kind of stuck at work, and I thought, okay, well, you know, it's about 5.30. I'm going to take off, head home. So I get on I-90, I start heading east, I get through the tunnel, and just as I come out the other side, there it is, the wall of red taillights. I'm like, oh God, okay. I didn't beat the traffic, I got stuck. It took me an hour just to go across the bridge, which is about two and a half miles to Mercer Island. So I got across the bridge, and then I decided, you know what, this is I'm going nowhere here fast. So I got off the freeway, 
I went to a local coffee shop and just kind of set up camp. It was like seven o'clock by this time. They were supposed to be open till nine. Anyway, about eight o'clock, they decided to close the coffee shop early. So we all get kicked back out onto the street. The snow's still going down like crazy. Uh, cars are sliding everywhere. It's just sort of a big mess. And the on-ramp back on the freeway was now closed. So I had to take some back roads on the island to find another on-ramp. I eventually got back on I-90. It took me another hour just to get to my exit. And actually, I got off two exits early and decided to take a little frontage road that kind of paralleled the freeway. This looked like Armageddon. It looked like a bomb zone. It looked like a, you know, some sort of war had been going on. There were abandoned cars everywhere, like right in the middle of the road. People just left their car. There were multiple cars, two dozen, three dozen, that were on their side or upside down in the ditch. So just a big mess. And I'm just kind of slowly crawling my way through that thinking, I'm glad I wasn't here when this happened. Anyway, no one was around at that time. So it was kind of eerie, right? Then I got back to the little town that I live in and there's nobody on the roads. It's perfect. It's that time during a snowstorm where all the terrible drivers have either crashed or gone home or just never came out. So it was perfect. The glot, me just sliding around corners, having fun. Well, to get to my neighborhood, which is at about, I don't know, a thousand foot elevation, there's two approaches and both of them aren't very good when it comes to traction. They're both have these kind of windy off camber turns in one section. So, you know, pick your poison. One's going to be bad. The other one's going to be worse. I picked the first one, started heading up the hill, and I thought, I'm going to carry a little extra speed here just to help me get up the hill and around the corner and back up to the top. Well, I got up there and there's like an accident with six or seven SUVs. You know, all these people who go out thinking, well, I've got all-wheel drive. I'll be just fine. Look, kids, all-wheel drive doesn't do it. Again, it's the tires, man. And these people are all out there in like all-season tires or worse, they're on like their summer tires. They just figured their all-wheel drive would magically save them. Well, <laughs> I stopped on the hill just before the corner where all the big accident was. And there was a neighbor standing outside and he's like, hey, uh, you're not rolling backwards. He goes, you want to just back into my driveway? I'm like, sure. So I back into his driveway and we just sat there for half an hour and watched the carnage. People, you know, scraping their cars on trees and concrete barriers and stuff like that. We even had a few people get out and say, hey, can you can you help us push our car? And I, I told one guy, I said, no, I'm, I'm not touching your car because... As soon as it starts to move, it's, you know, it's a steep downhill area. I'm going to get squished between your car and a tree or your car and another car. I said, I'd just call a tow truck and let them deal with it. Anyway, he went crashing into a wall about 100 yards down the road, which was, you know, sorry for the guy, but, you know, you had it coming. Anyway, once that carnage was cleared out of the way, the guy's like, hey, I think you got a clear path if you want to go. He goes, you might want to go down the hill and get a run at it and start up again. I said, nah, I think I'll be fine. So I put it in first. Pulled out of the guy's driveway, turned, went up the hill, and I'm going, you know, first gear, maybe 10 miles an hour, and I just crawled right up the hill, no problem. There was a little bit of wheel slip. You could feel that viscous center differential sending the power front and back. As I'm driving by these guys who, are, you know, their cars are all crumpled together and scraped up, their mouths literally are wide open, and they're staring at me, and I got my window down, and one guy's like, how are you doing that? <laughs> He goes, is that all-wheel drive? I said, dude, it's the tires. It's the Blizzak tires. I said, yeah, it's all-wheel drive, but you know, without the tires, I'm going nowhere. I get to the top, went around the corner, gave him a wave, and took off. Then I got up almost to my neighborhood, and there's a little windy road going up there, which was great because I was the first person to drive through virgin snow. 
oh my God, it was great. So I go up the road, just sliding around every quarter, a little power slide, you know, having a blast. I get up to the top. I'm like, well, I got to go do that again. I went up and down the road three times before the snowplow came. And then I'm like, okay, I'm out of here. So I went back to my house, parked the car, went in. But I'm telling you, VR4 or viscous real-time four-wheel drive was a really sophisticated traction enhancing system for the late 80s and combined with some winter specific tires like Blizzax or Michelin X-Ice or some of the other ones that are out there, you're going to be kind of unstoppable. So pretty impressive. But that was just part of the technology that made the Galant VR4 an outstanding sports sedan. So Mitsubishi, when they launched the car, they launched it with their full complement of what they called Active 4 technology, which included, of course, the four-wheel drive system, but also four-wheel independent suspension, four-wheel anti-lock brakes with discs at each corner, and something unique even among the tech-laden Japanese cars at the time, this car had four-wheel steering. This was a hydraulic system that actually turned the rear wheels up to one and a half degrees in the same phase or same direction with the front wheels at anything over 31 miles per hour. This was done for added stability at higher speeds. To be honest, I couldn't personally tell if the system made a difference. I mean, maybe if I could turn it off and turn it back on, but it was on full time. So, you know, did it work? I want to say yes, but did it really make a difference? I don't know. Just cool to have it. Um, the Galant VR4 also had some really great comfort and convenience features that pushed the car into a more premium category. This included stuff like leather interior, air conditioning, that was standard on the car, speed sensing wipers, plus on the optional side, you could get an AM FM stereo with cassette and CD player. Now CDs, you know, they're obsolete now, but CDs were a new thing at that point in time. It also had a tilting sliding glass moonroof with a sunshade. And there was this cool little button that would allow you to change between red and green on the gauges on the car at nighttime with just the flip of a switch. You know, a very late 80s, early 90s Japanese wonder car sort of thing. Do you need it? No, it's kind of ridiculous, but it was cool. Eh, green light, red light, green light. Anyway, it was the combination of the rally heritage, the technology inside the car, and the premium features that really made that car, the Galant VR4, a bit of an exotic amongst sports sedans of that era. So that was cool. Now, in addition to the premium features and that Active 4 technology, the other thing that really set the Galant VR4 apart from other sports sedans of that era was its 4G63 turbocharged and intercooled 2-liter engine. Now, this is a dual overhead cam power plant with multi-point fuel injection and four valves per cylinder that in stock form cranked out 195 horsepower at 6,000 RPM and 203 pound-feet of torque at 3,000 RPM. Now, that was a lot of horsepower and torque in 1991. For example, a somewhat comparable BMW 325iX 1991 made 168 horsepower with 164 pound-feet of torque. Now, the BMW engine was a normally aspirated inline six-cylinder, and the Galant had a turbocharged four-cylinder engine, so not exactly an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. But the Galant still made about 16% more horsepower and about 24% more torque, which was definitely impressive. So when you combine all these interesting features that came with the car, again, the technology, the interior, the overall it's-a-rally-car kind of thing, that's what made the car a really great sports sedan for that era and really for any era. Now, what are the specific reasons for why somebody would want a Galant VR4? 
I'll answer that by answering sort of like where I was at the time when I bought mine. Again, this was September of 2000, but at the time I needed a sedan. I needed something with four doors. We had a toddler and a baby, so you had to have something where you could put a child seat and a booster seat. But as somebody who likes to drive, I wanted something fun. And the Galant VR4 was a cool sports sedan that fit the need. It was also kind of nice because it was sort of stealthy, kind of a sleeper sports sedan. And that kind of helped me be ticket free over the time that I was driving back and forth between Portland and Seattle. That's what I bought the car for. Because of that commute, I also needed all weather capability. I wanted something that I could drive in the rain, in the snow, on a sunny day, you know, had working air conditioning. It would be comfortable. I could take the family. We could go skiing, all kinds of stuff. While the Rally Heritage was cool, and it's one of the things that kind of turned me onto the car, the Rally-developed all-wheel drive system was even cooler, at least for me. I knew it would work well in all weather conditions, and it really did. It was pretty amazing. I also needed something reliable. It was my daily driver. It had to be a reliable car. And being a limited edition homologation special and kind of a halo car for Mitsubishi with the tech and the build quality to match, I knew it was going to be a well-built and reliable machine, which is what it turned out to be. And since I was looking for something reliable, I was mostly focused on Japanese cars at the time. Now, I liked the previously mentioned BMW 325iX, but it was more expensive than the Galant VR4 as a used car at that time. I also liked the mid-80s Audi 4000S Quattro with its outstanding all-wheel drive system, but the horsepower from the inline five-cylinder was only 115 with 126 pound-feet of torque, giving it the motivation to go 0-60 to 60 in around 9.5 to 10 seconds. That's about three seconds slower than the Galant VR4, which is a lot slower. And while I like the look of the Audi, the lower performance, the potential cost of repairs using German parts, and the general lack of availability of decent examples on the used market, at that time anyway, made me say no to the Audi. Unfortunately, on the Japanese side, there really weren't that many great all-wheel drive cars, but the Galant VR4 was around and it was a great car. So that's kind of where I set my sights. I also needed something that was affordable. So like I said, there were European cars at the time with all-wheel drive, but they were more expensive and they offered less performance. Again, I'll mention that BMW 325iX made 168 horsepower with 164 pound-feet of torque compared to 195 and 203. Even though the 325 is a little bit lighter, it did have all-wheel drive, but it's a bit lighter on the, at least in the spec sheet compared to the Galant VR4. It wasn't as quick in acceleration, quarter mile or zero to 60. And, you know, all-wheel drive versus all-wheel drive, they're going to handle similarly. Now, typically a rear-drive car handles better than an all-wheel-drive car, but in this case, they're kind of the same. So, you know, I've never seen a test that compares the two of them side-by-side, but I bet they're comparable. The Galant VR4 may be a little bit faster. And the cool thing was, I didn't have to make any changes. It was fast out of the box. So that was something that I was excited about. The other thing was I wanted something I could work on myself. Now, the 4G63 turbo motor in the Galant VR4 is a very common engine. They've been around for a long time. Parts were available. Parts were affordable. And there was a really easy upgrade path to more performance when I wanted to do that. I eventually did. I eventually bumped the power up to probably around 240, 250 on the horsepower side. I never put it on a dyno, but uh, according to the mechanic who did a lot of the major work on my car, 
he said, look, the upgrade path that you've done would result in those sorts of horsepower increases. So that's probably about where you're at, which is great. I mean, the car was quick. It was fun. But the Galant VR4's turbo 2.0-liter engine has much more headroom to make additional power. Now, I was really conservative in my pursuit of additional power from my Galant VR4, but if you want, you can bump up the power considerably over what I'd done and still have a Galant VR4 that's daily driver reliable. Now, how much power are we talking about? Well, there's a great series of Galant VR4 YouTube videos from Tom Tharp of Tom's Turbo Garage that you can spend hours geeking out on, but the one I'll link to, he takes his Galant VR4 for a dyno tune, and running on pump gas and stock injectors, they tune it to hit over 350 horsepower on a four-wheel dyno. Now, that's nowhere near the peak power these cars can make, but it's smooth, tractable, real-world power that would turn any Galant VR4 into a street sleeper. But like I said, that's just the tip of the iceberg with these cars. There are many tuners out there getting wild amounts of power out of their 4G63 Turbo Galants. The quarter-mile drag race crowd is making enough horsepower to turn 8.75-second quarter-mile times at over 160 miles per hour. I mean, that was the fastest time I found. Maybe there's something faster now. While that may seem insane from a 2-liter, 4-cylinder, turbo-engine Galant VR4 that's more than 30 years old, there was one Galant VR4 that made enough horsepower to hit a record 224 miles per hour on the Bonneville Salt Flats. Now, to put that into perspective, there are many multi-million dollar supercars that can top, say, 200 miles per hour but very few can go 224 miles per hour. It takes a lot more horsepower beyond 200 miles per hour to hit 224. Of course, that particular Galant VR4 was built just to set speed records running on a flat, dry lake bed, but still, it's a four-door sedan with the aerodynamics of a brick with slightly rounded corners. It's not a supercar. And yes, I will put links to the various videos and articles and whatnot in the show notes about these cars and times and speeds, so you can have your own Galant VR4 deep dive geek out session if you have several hours or days to kill. Okay, so that does it for part one of this review of the Rodney Dangerfield of Street Rally Specials, the Galant VR4. And be sure to join me for part two, where we talk about what to look for when shopping for a Galant VR4 and review some of the problem areas these cars have. And here's a hint, there aren't many beyond the usual older used car things. And we'll also talk about other rally-inspired streetcars that are similar to the Galant VR4 in terms of price and performance that might be of interest to you if you like the idea of a street rally special as your daily driver. In the meantime, thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Gary Crenshaw, this is Better Than New, and I'm really glad you came along for the ride. <laughs>